Hello and welcome to the Frame Loop Podcast. My name is Luke Richardson. We are recording this on Sunday, the 7th of April 2013. I'm sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark, and joining me uh, around about 800 miles away is what some people like to call Rowdy Bobby Parker. It's Mr. Rob Fred Parker. Hi, Rob. Hi, Luke. How 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 have you been? Um, I'm really rather well, Rob. Thanks. Um sitting here. Unfortunately, it's snowing again here in April. Who would have thought it? Um, but I'm doing relatively good, I'd say. How about you? Pretty great, thank you. Great to be sitting down and speaking to you over Skype and also recording it and producing a podcast. I mean, what else would you want to be doing with your Sunday afternoon? Exactly. Well, that's quintessential um, Sunday afternoon, really. Yeah, it's becoming almost like it's a ritual for us now. We do this on a weekly basis and we should perhaps explain a little bit about what we do on this here thing. Uh, So each week we take a topic, a theme, if you will, and discuss it in some detail on our website, which is theframeloop.com. Please go uh, check that out if you like, uh, and we would like you to, so do that. Um, We've had previous themes such as school, uh, dive, jungle was last week's, and this week, why don't you tell the listeners what we have on our plates? Sure, well, we're looking at mutant um, so we'll be looking at one film, um, a book, and some other art, some music, um, which looks at the theme of people mutating, um, and looks at how um, how and we'll be looking at how that um, directly um, correlates to art, but also in in more metaphorical and implicit ways as well. Expertly said. Yes. So that's what we'll be doing. Uh, but before we get into a cultural discussion of that kind, we like to fill you in and get to uh, get to know us a little bit. So we say what we've been up to over the last week or so. Over to you, Rob. What have you been uh, preoccupied with over this last seven days? Um, well, last Thursday on the 28th of March, I went down to The Invisible Dot um, the Invisible Dot is a comedy production company. They're based in um, just um, a few minutes from King's Cross in London. Um, and they, at their offices, they actually have um, a brand new venue, which is um, fairly intimate. I think there's, there's space for maybe about 100 people. It was really rammed when I went along on Thursday. Um, the event I went to see was called Stories. Um, so it's basically a new venture by them. Um, and it's essentially just a, a storytelling night where they collected together lots of comedians who they generally work with who are on their roster. Um, but also, in a slight departure for The Invisible Dot, they also got along um, lots of uh, writers and even filmmakers. So I think it's sort of an attempt by them to kind of diversify and and uh, not just focus just on, you know, um, overtly comedic and comic uh, um, artists, but but also yeah to to sort of broaden it out a little bit. Um, so it's hosted by Liam Williams, who is one of uh, one part of the comedy sketch trio Sheeps, um, and he basically emceed the night, pulled it together, and between introducing acts, he would read out from um, read out little parts of a short story that he'd written, um, which was really well written. Um, I I've been impressed generally by Sheeps by the, the sort of level of of their humour, but I I found it. Um, it was really great to see um, see like the sort of the breadth of, of uh, Liam's talents. Um, yeah, so he it's definitely got like a, a way with words in his prose. The first act was Luke Wright, who's a poet. Um, he he read two poems. Um, one was inspired by a sighting of um, Essex Lion last summer. So this this happened just at the beginning of last summer, um, and basically I think it was in Basildon in Essex. Someone reported seeing a lion just sitting leisurely in a park. Um, there was a, a really big sort of uh, operation for um, people, speculators, as to whether it escaped from a zoo or something. But it actually, in the end, turned out just to be a, a cuddly toy that someone had just placed on the side of a park. Um, so he sort of looked at like the, the how humorous this situation was. Um, I, I really liked um, Luke Wright's delivery. I did find that his writing was um, contrived. Um, I felt it, it was a little bit contrived. Um, he, he does adopt like quite a, a thorough rhyme scheme for everything he writes um but um 
but regardless of those caveats, I did, I did think he, he delivered um, his, his writing really well. Um, one of the, the most affecting performances of the night was by a um, comedian called Will Andrews. Um, he's popped up in a number of sitcoms that I've watched. I think he's a regular on the Anna Crilly and Katie Wick show, Anna and Katie, which is a sketch show on Channel 4. Um, I've also seen him in the excellent um, sitcom Him and Her, which is written by Stefan Golazowski on BBC3. Um, so he told a story, a, a true story, about um, when he moved from Glasgow to London, when he found himself in a completely new city where he only knew uh, a few people. Um, this was also a time where he was getting over the, the death of a friend. Um, so he, he actually, it was, it was quite clear that he found it quite, quite hard to deliver this story because obviously he'd invested so much in, in writing it. Um, and uh, it was, there was a, a great deal of power to it. It was very raw, it was really sensitively composed. Um, and it, it seemed to, yeah, it, I mean, it seemed to be quite hard for him to deliver it. He did actually, once he'd finished it, he kind of just, um, it looked like he just had to get out the venue for for a while. And I think um, that was pretty much the last uh, that we saw of him. Um, but it, it was really quite quite rare to see such a, such conviction in in the delivery of, of, of a reading. So I, I felt that that was a really, really uh, powerful uh, performance. Um, we then had Josie Long, the uh, English stand-up comedian. Um, she delivered two stories, the finest of which um, featured in a BBC Radio 4 play from 2011 called Ten Lessons About Love. Um, that play was a compilation of stories by um, a number of writers. Um, another fine one was by Tim Key, the comedian. Um, so do check that out. Um, Josie's story is about um, yeah, it's a fictional um, account of a woman living with her boyfriend who one day discovers a, a, a whole stash of letters in the back of a cupboard from a former lover. Um, and it's kind of about her trying to rationalise this, uh, her, her mind also just kind of um, getting ahead of herself, speculating about their relationship. Um, so it's really fun. Do check out that, um, that radio play. You can download it on iTunes, I believe. Um, we also had Joe Dunthorn, who is a Welsh writer who I've mentioned a number of times on the podcast. He read a uh, story called The Shapes We Make, which is um, told from the collective consciousness of a yoga class. Um, and that was published in The Guardian in December of 2012. So you can find that on their website. Um, and I, I do recommend checking that out. It's a really fine short story. Um, the night was concluded by a short film by Jay Van Tulliken, who's a filmmaker I've, I knew of in the past because he makes a lot of films with Tim Key. Um, so he directed uh, a lot of the films that have featured in Tim Key's um, stand-up shows. Um, it's a horror film. It's basically uh, about a man trekking across the Arctic with his dog, um, raiding abandoned houses, seeing what he can um, steal from these houses that have been uh, left by their owners. Um, I felt it, it was quite strange that from an evening where we had, you know, like seven or eight um, spoken performances, just to, to conclude it with a short film, um, I felt that was a little bit jarring. I also felt um, it was a horror film that Javen Tulligan show, uh, showed. Um, and I, I don't think it quite worked as a film. Um, it, there were many attempts to sort of shock the, the audience, and although many of the images were quite striking and the visual aesthetic was, uh, it worked for, you know, um, for the most part, I think um, the, the key scenes felt a little bit lacking. Um, and it, it was kind of a, yeah, quite an odd ending to the evening. But um, for the most part, the, the, the standard of the, um, of the performances was really high. And, <clears throat> and um, Liam Williams did hint at, the, um, at it becoming like a regular instalment at The Invisible Dot. Um, so I, I really w I would love to go along again. And I think um, the way that they're sort of... Um, bringing uh, comedy and like uh, literary uh, performances together. I think that's that's really exciting. Um, so do check out the, the whole roster of events that Invisible Dot are putting on. And where can they do that, Rob? What's the uh, site we should be checking out? Theinvisibledot.com There you go, probably that one. Excellent. Yeah, I'd, uh, I've seen quite a few of those uh, comedians, at least, um, in my time when I was back in London. And uh, they were, this was about 18 months ago, and even back then, really promising, not just as uh, joke tellers, but storytellers as well. So hopefully that does become a, uh, a regular uh, part of the Invisible Dot roster, which is excellent across the board, really, isn't it? So definitely some stuff to worth uh, checking out. Right, uh, well, as per usual, I've done a lot of film watching over the last seven or so days. And uh, 
you will see the benefits of those on theframeloop.com uh, coming this week. We'll have a couple of reviews up there. Uh, one that I'm particularly um, interested to hear about what other people have to say about the film is the new Derek Semfranc film, The Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, I'll keep my uh, reserve. Uh, I'll reserve my criticisms of that film for the review, and that will be up, I think, on Wednesday. That's when it's embargoed till, so you can check that out on theframeloop.com from there. Uh, elsewhere, another film that I've been watching, and one that I would definitely recommend to other people checking out, is not a new film. It's actually coming up to its 10-year anniversary, and it's known quite notoriously as one of the worst films ever made. Uh, it's not Troll 2, which is another one of the worst films ever made. It is, in fact, The Room. Now, if you haven't heard the legend behind this pretty incredible film, it's uh, written, edited, produced, uh, starring one man. Oh, and directed, um, did I mention that one as well? Uh, basically, this man, Tommy Wazoo, it's the, uh, the birth child of him. And it's a pretty bizarre film, uh, both... Its narrative, the characterization, uh, the setting, the themes, none of which make sense. But what makes this film such an uproarious uh, thing to celebrate, really, is that it has very many of these notorious screenings that come across all over the world, really. Um, so it's picked up this acclaim as being, in the similar way as a film like Rocky Horror Picture Show, a uh, very collaborative viewing experience. So. I went to see this at the Hussel in Melstrail, which is in Copenhagen, and I believe that uh, the Prince Charles Cinema over with you there, Rob. Um, yep, hi, he's waving to me there. Um, hi, uh, I'm sure that they do regular screenings of this as well, and rightly so. Um, it's a pretty hilarious night. I mean, it's probably the most I've last, laughed this year so far. Um, second time I've seen it, and it still holds up. And um, when they were introducing the film, uh, the programmers at the Hussle, uh, they mentioned, has anyone seen this before? And eventually it got to the point where one guy said that this was his 11th uh, public screening visit of this film. So he's loved it that much, maybe a little bit too many times to see the film, but it's really worth checking out. Um, it's effectively, you know, the best drama you'll ever see. Um, only it's not, it's absolutely terrible. Um, as I said, Tommy Wazoo stars as this guy Johnny, who is living with his um, living with his girlfriend, who's uh, the adulterer, sleeping with his best friend. So you've got this love triangle story, as well as um, there's a drug dealer that just pops in at some point. Uh, there's a 15-year-old boy who looks like he's played by a 40-year-old man. Uh, that's pretty jarring uh, to see. And this film is just like a, I don't know, a smorgasbord of bullshit cinema, but in such a way that is so bad, it's brilliant. Um, so I think you can actually go onto the official The Room website, it's theroommovie.com, and I think that they have the uh, screening details of pretty much all over the world where you can see this film. As I said, it's uh, coming up to its 10 year anniversary, uh, so there's never really been a better time to uh, go with a bunch of guys, a bunch of friends that you have, and see this film. Also take a lot of drink, because you may need quite a heavy consumption of alcohol to get through it. Really worth seeing, and I must state the point that this wasn't made for a laugh. This is a deadly serious drama film, um, but it's somehow become one of the best comedies of all time. So that I actually, is... um, I Go saw uh, Tommy Wiseau um, about a month ago, because um, like you said, Prince Charles um, Cinema in Leicester Square... They put on, I think, um, I think they show it about once every month, but for the last few screenings, they've actually had Tommy Wiseau in attendance to do a Q&A. Um, and I, I haven't actually, I've only ever seen it on, um, on DVD. I haven't actually seen it at one of the screenings. But I went the other week, um, just for like, I think about like 6pm on Sunday, I just went to see um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which I was really looking forward to, and I went along. Um, and I completely forgot that the, the room was actually being screened on their, at their other screen, it's like the main screen at that cinema, um, so I, so I, yeah, I went went into the film. Really, really loved it. I thought um, performances are great. I was just really absorbed by that, and you're I was kind of walking out. You're talking about Beast uh, Beast of the of summer. summer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not the room. Yeah, no, no, no. But when I came out of that, I was kind of like so absorbed in that film, kind of walking out of that um, 
like really sort of uh, fulfilled by it. Um, and then I just walked basically straight into Tommy Wiseau, um, who was in the the, the bar downstairs because I was just walking through to the toilets. Um, but yeah, he was just outside like chatting with some friends. Um, I think he was selling some posters um, and maybe even T-shirts. He had like his own little merchandise bar set up. Um, but yeah, like uh, he he seemed to be like he seemed to really be engaging with his with his fans, which is really great to see. Because um, I I kind of like I, I would kind of if I had to sort of speculate, I would think he'd be quite a, a strange man well, on the basis of the film anyway. Maybe mm. even quite aloof. But um, but yeah, he seemed to be very um, like. Um, very uh, happy to be there, really. So I, I, I do. I would like to go along to, mm. a, like, one of these special screenings or Q and As or something. Because yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Like, once you see it, you, you won't stop thinking about it for a long time. It is just so inexplicable and odd. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's, a very, it's, it's kind of a world unto itself, really. Yeah, it's a very curious um, uh, screen, uh, like ninety minutes of cinema that you're going to spend. Um, but I, I, one thing I would recommend, if you do have an American football, um, bring it along. If you have a, a large, uh, uh, if you have a great deal of uh, plastic spoons, then maybe they're worth bringing on as well. I won't say exactly for why, but you'll uh, soon realise. Um, maybe some pillows as well, you may need those. A, because you can use them in the film screening uh, if you're really bored by it and you can sleep. And also because there's a pillow fight about halfway through the film. So it's pretty uh, collaborative experience. And what is great about that is, regardless of what Tommy uh, Wazoo says, it wasn't made as a uh, as a black comedy. It is a straight up drama, and that makes it all the more hilarious. So that is the room, and that is pretty much what we've been up to over the last week. So now I think it's about time that we get into our thematic topic. And this week, as mentioned by Rob, it is mutants. So, and uh, where what better way to start off with a song by these guys? <laughs> was a little bit of Brazilian Tropicalia there with Quem de Mero de Blanca de Amor from the unforgettable and unmissable Os Mutantes. Uh, apologies if there's some horrendous pronunciation there, my Portuguese isn't quite so good at the moment. Uh, but of course the name of the band Os Mutantes, that could only mean one thing, it's about time that we talk about our theme for this week which is Mutant. And we'll start off by saying that if you did like uh, that little bit of uh, Brazilian flavour we gave you there, you can check out the rest of Osu uh work, of course, their discography. And also, why not uh, subscribe to the Frame Loop podcast, uh, the playlist that we have from this week. It's, uh, we've got loads of stuff on there relating to the theme of Mutant, from Fire Sea Lion is on there, Blur's Bugman, uh, The O.C.'s The Freak Was Clean, Mothers of Invention, Frank's, uh, Cat Power... Uh, lots of really great stuff that you need to be checking out and somehow or another relates to that theme of Mutant. And that's the music out of the way. And now I'm going to send you over to the soup maker and baking connoisseur himself, Mr. Rob Fred Parker, with his favourite segment of the podcast. Sure. So this is the Frame Loop uh, book club. We're now in session uh, once again. Um, so to explore the theme of Mutant... Um, and the idea of humans mutating into strange and unrecognisable things, we'll begin by looking at the novella The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Um, so Franz Kafka was an Austro-Hungarian writer who worked uh, towards the beginning of the 20th century, um, and he wrote um, Metamorphosis in 1915. Um, and to give you a flavour of the, of the writing, um, I think I'll read the, the, opening, the opening segment. Um, so here it is. 
As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. He was lying on his hard, as it were armour-plated, back, and when he lifted his head a little, he could see his dome-like brown belly, divided into stiff arch segments, on top of which the bed quilt could hardly keep in position, and was about to slide off completely. His numerous legs, which were pitifully thin compared to the rest of his bulk, waved helplessly before his eyes. What has happened to me, he thought. It was no dream. His room, a regular human bedroom, only rather too small, lay quiet between the four familiar walls. Above the table on which a collection of cloth samples were unpacked and spread out, Samsa was a commercial traveller, hung the picture which he had recently cut out of an illustrated magazine and put into a pretty gilt frame. It showed a lady with a fur cap on and a fur stole, sitting upright and holding out to the spectator a huge fur muff into which the whole of her foreham had vanished. Gregor's eyes turned next to the window and the overcast sky. One could hear raindrops beating on the window gutter. Made him quite melancholy. What about sleeping a little longer and forgetting all this nonsense, he thought. But it could not be done, for he was accustomed to sleep on his right side, and in his present condition he could not turn himself over. However violently he forced himself toward his right side, he always rolled onto his back again. He tried it at least a hundred times, shutting his eyes to keep from seeing his struggling legs, only desisted when he began to feel in his side a faint dull ache which he had never experienced before. Um, so that should give you an idea about the metamorphosis. It's a novella which um, describes uh, an unlikely event in the life of Gregor Samsa, um, in which he inexplicably uh, mutates into a, a large beetle. Um, so he notices upon waking that he's transformed. Um, what happens straight after that little uh, paragraph, paragraph that I read out is that his mother calls in because um, he's a, he's a very much a, a dedicated worker. He's a travelling salesman and he's basically, his income um, is basically what his family lives off. He, he lives with his parents and his sister and they're very much quite dependent on his income. So he, he generally leaves um, to work. Uh, gets his train to work at about five in the morning. Um, I think it's about like seven or eight um, when he wakes up. So his mother calls in. Um, he tries to to reassure her, um, although he's he's obviously very confused. He, he tries to be quite calm and placid and tries to reassure her by saying everything's okay. But he notices his voice is changing. So when he calls out, um, the the sentence where he speaks sounds really sort of shrill and quite um, quite insect-like, um, if that's possible. Um, so, um, so at first he, he tries to, he kind of thinks like perhaps I'm dreaming or, um, but, um, he, he sort of almost sort of come, comes to terms with his condition. Um, he, he thinks, yeah, like clearly I've, I've mutated, um, maybe it'd be possible that I'll mutate back into a human. Um, so he tries to sort of come to terms with, uh, with, uh, being a, a, a gigantic beetle. Um, but his family, uh, quite understandably aren't really... Uh, well, find this very hard, find this um, a very difficult uh, situation to, to go along with. Um, his sister, his younger sister, Greta, is at first willing to sort of assist him, find him food, um, help him to kind of exist um, and defend him from her parents. But her patience becomes quite uh, exasperated um, and her tolerance sort of um, begins to uh, get worn, worn out um, as Gregor becomes more and more... Uh, insect and less and less human as the novella progresses. Um, so he eventually becomes driven by an entirely different set of instincts and desires than a human would be driven by. Um, there's also um, one of the key uh, aspects of Gregor's um, existence is that he has quite a troubled relationship with his father um, and this just becomes a lot, lot worse like uh, when he's not able to communicate with him. Um, as a normal human would be able to. Um, so this kind of culminates in his father throwing apples at Gregor because he, he thinks Gregor is trying to attack his mother one day, whereas he's just, uh, he's, he's just feeling a real loneliness and he just wants to connect to his mother as he did when he was a human. Um, so one of the apples becomes lodged in Gregor's back um, and <clears throat> this, uh, this makes him a lot less mobile, less able to move around freely in their apartment. Um, I don't want to spoil the ending, but um, let's just say um, there certainly isn't a happy ending to this story. Um, Franz Kafka is he's known for being quite a brutal um, writer, 
and one of his sort of re recurring motifs was the futility of human endeavour. Um, so, like we saw um, where Gregor in that passage was lying on his on his back, trying to flip himself over onto his legs, but he he finds uh, he he's unable to do it. He just looks at his legs flailing around. Um, that's quite an interesting uh, for how it symbolises this idea of uh, Kafka um, trying to portray that um, no matter how he might uh, try to overcome or try to struggle, that um, he he was of the opinion that uh, that this you know human endeavour is quite uh, quite futile and that, that it won't really come to anything. Um, a lot has been been made about uh, Kafka's. Um, almost being the archetypal uh, tortured or tormented artist. Um, so whilst he, he was alive, he only lived until 40. Um, so he died at quite a young age, but he kind of he struggled with work. Um, just like Gregor Samsa, he was responsible for his family. Um, so he had to work quite a, a well, um, what he called a, a bread job or a day job um, throughout the day. Um, but he was, he felt so committed to his writing that he'd stay up into the small hours trying to trying to get his work done, um, but he actually never really met much much success at all during his own lifetime. Um, he only had uh, one or two works actually published, and um, he had such little confidence in his writing that um, when uh, when his tuberculosis got a lot worse, um, he said to a close friend that just uh, destroy all my manuscripts, I don't want them to see the light of day. Um, so he, he also suffered a lot of insomnia as well, and um, According to his journals, uh, journals at one point, he he uh, the insomnia got so bad that he he began having quite paranoid thoughts and quite negative thoughts, and he felt like he was quite repulsive and a burden to his family. Um, so we can see uh, we can see how his own life would have fed into uh, inspiration for metamorphosis. <coughs> um, I think the there's a sort of uh, a, a kind of theme of body horror at the heart of the story and battling against. Uh, your anatomy um, and not feeling in control of your body which really feeds into into the story and I think this would be inspired by his own struggle with uh, illness. Um, the the kind of the inexplicable nature of the story we, we never actually get any um, explanation as to why Gregor does morph into a beetle um, that's really key to Kafka's work um, it's uh, at the core of the trial as well his his novel um, but Kafka um, although he died at such a young age um, his his manuscripts did go on to be published, and he he still stands as one of the most in, inspirational uh, writers. Um, I remember reading the uh, best European fiction um, publication in 2010, and in Zadie Smith's preface, she was one of the editors. She said that looking at all of the uh, all of the best uh, European fiction of that year, that she sort of deemed that Kafka was still the most inspirational writer and his sort of influence was like a, a, a line running through that collection of writers. Um, so he, he went on to inspire um, such uh, formidable writers as John Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, who are quite noted for their ex existentialist themes. Um, and then you've got like modern writers like Haruki Murakami, David Foster Wallace as well. Um, but I think his, his uh, influence can also be seen um, in cinema as well, um, I think the the movement of body horror very much relates to to what we see in Metamorphoses. Um, there've there's been quite a few adaptations. Um, quite a few artists have have tried to to bring Metamorphoses to life, um, both in in film and uh, on stage as well. There was a stage adaptation by the English uh, theatre maker Stephen Burkhoff in '69. And then in 2006, the Icelandic company Vesterport, in partnership with the Lyric Theatre, um, put on a production of The Metamorphosis, and that was soundtracked by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Um, there's also been a comic adaptation by Robert Crumb as well, so it continues to attract artists of, of a very very high calibre. Um, there's two texts that I'd like to talk about, which um, do hit upon the, the sort of... the very bleak, but also... Um, there's 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 a great humour at the heart of Kafka's work, um, which which sounds sort of incongruous because it it is so sort of um, so almost quite cryptic and quite pessimistic um, and just incredibly odd. But I think it, it's in his deadpan delivery. I think you, you might have heard it in that paragraph where he he just presents the facts. Like the the first sentence is that Gregor Samsa woke up. He he's morphed into a beetle. Um, 
so it's it's a very very dry and very direct approach they've taken. Um, and this uh, this sort of theme was looked at by the uh, Scottish filmmaker and actor Peter Capaldi. Um, he's most famous for playing Malcolm Tucker in Armando Iannucci's comedy The Thick of It. But in 1995, he made a short film called Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I think it's about a 25-minute film. It won the BAFTA for Best Short Film in 94. Um, and stars Richard E. Grant as uh, as the writer Franz Kafka, um, and it sort of uh, it riffs on uh, Kafka's process of writing metamorphoses. So we find him in his rather modest flat, um, and he's trying to write the first sentence of the story, but he can't actually decide um, what what object or animal uh, Samsa should morph into. So we see him trying to draw upon. Um, his surroundings. So he he looks over to a fruit bowl, and um, we kind of see like a, uh, his sort of daydream as uh, as to whether he can have some sort of morph into a banana. Um, and then later on, he he walks uh, walks in on one of the other flats in his building, and um, some young women are in quite an absurd uh, absurd happening. Um, they just see that they're for some reason pretending to be kangaroos and dancing around. So he kind of um, kind of. Uh, tries to deem whether a kangaroo might be a suitable um, animal for Samsa to morph into. Um, and then later on a cockroach arrives on his page, so he has this moment of inspiration. Um, so it kind of, it doesn't entirely make light of, of Kafka, but I think it, it sort of latches onto the sort of, the dryness and the absurdity at the heart of his work. Um, we've also got lots of um, nods to his other works, such as The Trial. So we, we see um, Richard E. Grant playing Kafka, um, getting embroiled in quite circuitous implications, um, and I, I think um, it's it's got a really ironic, quite happy ending as well, um, because there there were no re resolutions ever in Kafka's work. It, they always sort of um, he he always wanted his characters to sort of remain embroiled in these implications and never really find a way out. Um, so that's a really nice twist on the on the Kafka uh, canon. Um, there was also a very fine um, radio story written by David Rakoff, who was a Canadian-born writer. Um, it came to my attention as a, a long-term contributor to This American Life, the uh, American uh, public radio show made by Chicago Public Radio and WBEZ. Um, David Rakoff actually sadly died last year at the age of 47 after a long battle with cancer. But he made a story called, Oh, the Places You Will Not Go which was originally broadcast on Wiretap and then rebroadcast on This American Life in 2012. Um, and he casts uh, Gregor Samsa as a troubled young man who's, uh, of course, morphed into a beetle, but looks to um, a famous doctor for advice. And the doctor he chooses to contact is Dr. Zeus. Um, so I'm going to play a clip of the opening of All the Places You Will Not Go. Hair Doctor. I find myself for reasons inexplicable to me or my loving family, to have woken up this morning, transformed into a cockroach. I am reasonably certain this is not a dream. Can you help? I am usually in very fine fettle in the morning, but as a result of my new condition, I find myself unable to go into work. And while my life has never been what you might call a bed of roses, this unfortunate turn of events has certainly made it worse. By way of example, this letter has been composed by painstakingly mashing my antennae into the keys of my father's typewriter. It has taken me close to four hours and has left me with a horrendous migraine. I write to you because I have heard of your brilliance and your keen appreciation for the absurdity of this world. Please help. Yours, Gregor Samsa, Prague. Samsa, I've only just opened your letter. Fear not, worry neither. We'll soon have you better. You might feel like a freak, but I'll make you quite well. Your problem's unique, yet your name rings a bell. A silkworm I knew used to live in a trillium. I think his name was Samsa. Or was it Fitzwilliam? Oh, well, please forgive me. My mind is a haze. One really meets so many faces nowadays. If you ooze like a slug or you prick like a cactus, every ill-feeling bug finds his way to my practice. Whether dozens of styes mar your hundred-eyed face, whatever your ailment, you're in the right place. Not to brag, but I've never yet failed to determine whatever root causes were vexing a vermin. 
Rest assured, I'll endeavor to glean and deduce. You'll be better than ever, or my name isn't Seuss. Um, so that was a clip from the radio story, uh, Oh, the Places You Will Not Go, which was performed by uh, the writer David Rakoff and Jonathan Goldstein, who actually um, is the host of Wiretap, where it was originally broadcast. Um, so it really latches on to the sort of absurdity and the humour, which is fairly subtle and implicit, but also a very defining feature in Kafka's work. Um, so um, it's another example of... Uh, Rakoff's penchant for writing in rhyme, which he pursued quite a lot towards the end of his career. Um, and I think it's it sort of, just like um, Capaldi's film, um, it really builds upon the sort of ludicrous and absurd nature of the metamorphosis. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's quite incredible that for a novella written um, 1915, it's um, been so consistently really alluring to artists. Um, and it really seems to, to be so such an odd um, and in, kind of almost inexplicable work, but it, it seems to have so much resonance uh, even today. Um, and I think um, in, terms of, in terms of the theme, it, it looks at Mutant very, very literally, but I think it, it really does, um, although it's only about 70 pages or something, there really is, it just suggests so much. And I think once you read it, 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 doesn't, really, it doesn't really give you any like clear-cut answers, it presents these events but doesn't comment on them. Um, so I think I think that's why it has so much resonance, and it, it will stay with you once you've read it. I do believe. Do you um, do you agree, Luke? Did you do in, did you enjoy reading it? Uh, I did. Yeah, I read it a couple of years ago, um, and it's certainly one that I recommend any fan, not only of uh, kind of absurdist or dark literature, but of literature as a whole, really, because it is somewhat of a sacred cow of a of a piece. Um, what is also interesting there, I, I was looking, I was trying to, uh, I was waiting for the word that you were to mention it there, but I, I don't, I'm not sure if you did, is, of course, aside from the mutant theme that runs throughout the metamorphosis, you also have what is somewhat of a, a thematic palindrome to it of uh, existentialism. And this is also something that's very much key to not only uh, the rest of Kafka's work, but his uh, identity as well. He follows a, a line of pretty uh, tortured uh, uh, artists that have been you know, struggling with mental health issues. People, of course, like Edgar Allan Poe from before him. And uh, then somewhere in the middle there, I think Vincent van Gogh. Like you, like you have these people that are so um, entrenched in their own uh, literary worlds or their own creations that they soon uh, kind of, uh, they lose touch of the, the real world outside of that. And I think that what is so interesting about the metamorphosis is also Kafka himself. Uh, although the book is a sacred cow, it's almost him as uh, an identity, as a cultural identity that has become so crucial and important uh, across many uh, different disciplines in culture. Of course, Rob did mention um, the, some of the, the, the works, the body horror work that has been uh, written or at least inspired uh, by Kafka. And you can also look at another film which just sprang to mind, uh, Kafka from, I think, 1991, uh, which is written and directed by Steven Soderbergh, which is kind of an ode to one of his favourite liter literary uh, gods, and certainly worth checking out, as are five other mutant-related films, which you can find on theframeloop.com. And I think we're going to go into a bit more detail about all of those right about now. Uh, thank you, Rob, for The Metamorphosis. And now we move over to films with our Mutant Film of the Week. So if you go to the website, you'll see things like uh, Cronenberg's landmark adaptation of The Fly, which of course relates to the mutant theme. We also have uh, Vincent Price starring dystopian vampire film, The Last Man on Earth. And uh, you can check those out on the website as mentioned. But today we're going to be mentioning our mutant movie of choice, Shinya Tusa Makamoto's Tetsuo the Iron Man from 1989. Uh, we'll delve into the film in more detail, but first here's a clip from Chu Ishikwa's industrial score that opens the movie, um, which will hopefully play some kind of credence to just how volatile Tetsu it really is.
That was a snippet from the soundtrack of Tuso Makamoto's Tetsu the Iron Man, our mutant movie pick here on the Frame Loop podcast. And uh, once you've listened to that, you're probably wondering what is going on in this film. Uh, obviously a lot of noise there and a lot of uh, indecipherable uh, knowledge thrown there, a lot of screams as well. Uh, I've seen it twice, I'm still trying to struggle to come to a conclusion of exactly what it's about. Uh, filmed on grimy black and white 16mm stock in 4.3 uh, radio ratio format, it looks and feels like an avant-gardist fever dream, or probably more apt, a fever nightmare. Uh, it's a collage of sorts, of uh, blistering elliptical sequences, which starts out with a metal fetishist slicing open his leg and inserting a lead pipe, and ends with a mutated half-man, half-metal beast fighting for his life, and his almost receding grip on humanity. Uh, another key scene as well, I'm not sure if you picked out on this one, Rob, is when we see our uh, flawed anti-hero being uh, inseminated by a woman wearing what looks like a, a snake as a strap-on dildo. That's a pretty uh, excellent moment in this film. So, it's batshit crazy. That's what this film is. If you're looking for some kind of cohesive narrative, then you're going to be looking for long after the 67-minute running, running time. Um, at its most stark, it's a story of man versus woman versus metal fetishist, uh, the last of which is played by the filmmaker Tusa Makamoto himself. Um, and the story, if you want to call it that, uh, it goes like this. After running down the fetishist in his car, the nameless man gets ready for a day's work, takes a peek into the mirror and realises that without explanation, he has a metal spot hanging out of his face. And this is the start of what becomes a gross mutation across the film, where he becomes less of a human and more of a metal machine. Uh, then we also see his illusory visions that start to become a reality, and as I said, his body is transformed. When you think about uh, what exactly it looks like or what it uh, reminds people of, a lot of people have mentioned uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead, and of course the work previously mentioned from David Cronenberg. And I can see some of that, but in the example of uh, Eraserhead, I think it actually makes that film look rather staid in comparison. Um, Tetsu, it really is a ballistic film. It moves at such a kind of almost a <laughs> nauseating uh, pace that it's really difficult to keep up with. And obviously because you don't have a narrative thread that uh, kind of runs throughout the film, it can be difficult to keep up with it. Um, and looking at Cronenberg's work, I think it kind of related to uh, Rabid, Scanners, and of course his adaptation of Crash, uh, which is looking at uh, almost a satirical look at fetishistic tendencies in Western commodified culture. Uh, then, of course, the one that is perhaps most linking to the idea of the metamorphosis from Kafka, The Fly, uh, which is probably my favourite Cronenberg film. Uh, that can be seen as a narrative comparison, but the, the ap uh, absolute difference between The Fly and Tetsuro is that in Cronenberg's film we're given some kind of empathy and compassion for Seth Brundle who turns into this fly. Um, with Tetsuro we don't get any of that really, because we it's pretty much almost void of any kind of emotional impulse in the film, so it's quite hard to kind of connect to it in that sort of level. Um, so. As I said, I've seen this twice, I watched it again this week, just before watching the podcast, uh, recording this podcast, and um, what it actually reminded me of, perhaps because of the uh, like pulsing, clamorous score, Chikwa, um, is perhaps like a music video. It moves at that, like, kind of such a frenetic pace, it could almost be like an Aphex Twin or Nine Inch Nails music video. So that's what the kind of level that you're looking at when you're uh, going into this film. So, it's a part mutilated body horror, part scathing satire, part warped and sadistic love story between man and machine. Tetsuo the Iron Man is all of these things at once, and not at all. But for sure it's a cinematic visual punishment and test on the audience. That's my uh, words that I prepared for this here podcast. Rob, what did you think of Tetsuo? Well, I, um, I first heard about this film um, from cinephile and burrito fiend Dan Anderson. Um, he told me about it uh, not too long ago, and he actually recounted a quite an odd anecdote. of um, Apparently, when, when he was in his first year at uni, he was living with like a group of lads in Portsmouth. Um, and they, um, he's quite like a, quite the cinephile, whereas they, they had, um, 
he didn't know this at the time, he'd only just moved into that flat, but they had much more mainstream um, choice uh, of films, uh, interest in films. Um, and he told me that um, he, he never used to get hangovers in first year, so they went out for a really heavy night. Um, he woke up like 11 or whatever the next morning, and he thought, I've had this DVD for ages. Um, I thought, I think I'll just put on Tetsuo the Iron Man. And he put it on in his lounge, um, and they, I think they had like a, a sound system so it was quite quite powerful sound system that he was playing it on, um, and he told me about like one by one his flatmates were getting up like ridiculously hungover coming in, and they just like seeing this incredibly odd art house film playing with this like clamouring industrial soundtrack, and I think that would pre probably be pretty much the worst thing, um, like the the absolute opposite of a hangover cure. I think it it made me quite feel quite. Um, so disorientated and quite almost quite um dizzy and sick and i mean i was absolutely so cold sober um so so yeah um it's a i think it's it's labeled a japanese cyberpunk film um it's funny uh, luke that you should that you made that um sort of relation to like a music video um because um there, there's a really great scene like uh i think in the first few minutes of the film it's also um featured in the trailer as well a really really compelling trailer um, where uh, Tetsuo is, um, he's he's only just starting to sort of um, notice these mutations, and he's only just like um, at the very like first stages of of this uh, journey he goes on, this like very uh, physical journey he goes on, um, and he's I think he's in like a, a factory of some sort, and you have this kind of cacophony of metals of metallic um, clangs going on, and it almost they almost create like a beat. Out of these clangs, so it's really industrial, really hard-hitting beat going on. Um, and he's standing there in his suit with his like his hair slicked back, and he starts writhing around this cacophony of sounds. And he's almost like a sort of metallic Japanese David Byrne. Like it, it, it really reminded me of um, uh, is it what's it called? Stop making sense. The the Talking Heads film. Yeah. So that kind of choreography, I thought, was was really gripping. Um, there there were many moments in the film for all its. Uh, disorientating uh, nature. I think that's kind of the the kind of the the main aim of the film is to make you feel very disorientated. It's very cut up um, and odd. But there, there are very moments which um, which I thought I, I really I really sort of relished uh, watching it. Um, there's a really uh, there's an incredibly strange sex scene where um, Tetsuo is with his girlfriend and his uh, his penis actually morphs into a sort of basically a pneumatic drill. Um, but I I felt that um, the way the the filmmakers um, sort of utilise chiaroscuro, so you've got really stark contrast between black and white. Um, so tonally, the film is really really striking, and I felt that 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 scene um, just yeah really enthralling, um, incredibly gory and grisly as well. Um, that's probably the height of its you know gore, uh, where he he tries to conduct a sex act with a essentially a pneumatic drill. Um, but yeah. Um, Again, to go back to the the soundtrack, so you've got this sort of clamouring industrial sounds. Um, I think during during some of the the film's like grisliest moments, uh, the the soundtrack kind of just um, uh, repeats uh, like th three high pitched notes, just um, just just completely just moving between the three like really quickly, um, and that really added to the the sort of disorientation that I felt throughout. Um, the the sort of camera placement and the way the camera moves and the framing of of many of the scenes really added to this as well. There's a chase sequence quite early on at a train station, where Tetsuo is being chased by um, some. Uh, I think it's it's a person who's, who's also going through these me metallic mutations. Um, and we when we when we see Tetsuo running through the train station, there's a there's quite an odd camera placement. So we actually see him like basically running diagonally, um, and it's. It makes for quite a strange composition. So we do have um, some very uh, jarring, disorientating camera movement, which really adds to uh, to feeling just entirely lost, but also really absorbed, absorbed in the film as well. Um, like I said, there's a very sort of twisted um, portrayal of gender, um, as Luke mentioned. There's uh, Tetsuo um, undergoes an encounter with a woman with a um, gigantic mechanical member. Um, and um, so yeah, so all of these things kind of do do meld together um, and mesh to make a incredibly incredibly odd, but also for the most part pre pretty engaging film. Really, I I did think that um, it. I mean, it's about sixty one minutes, um, but 
But I, I do feel that it, it kind of, I think it lost its way for like maybe the last half of the film, which is quite a big, quite a big claim. Um, but I, I think um, that yeah, that there's a few things which I I, I was kind of nonplussed by. Um, like a, at the very end of the film, there's we get a bit of voiceover narration by Tetsuo, um, which I felt was quite odd that we just have this sliver of narration right at the end, and it, it isn't a it isn't recurring throughout the theme. Um, so I thought this was quite an odd choice. Um, but then again, if you did have the narration throughout the film, it may um, that would almost be too. Uh, to, it would almost perhaps explain what's going on, what was what was happening too much. So that's obviously not something that was uh, a key concern for the filmmakers. Um, um, but yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's an uneven film, but it is it's incredibly creative, and there's a there's such a great deal of imagination. Um, the the performance is very convinced well, not entirely convincing, but um, there were lots of convic conviction in the performances. Um, the soundtrack is incredibly striking, um, and yeah, if you just um, if you've had enough of um, Marley and Me and um, just the sort of formulaic uh, linear filmmaking, and you want something uh, quite visceral and quite um, compelling for for all its oddness, then definitely give Tetsuo the Iron Man a go. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's um, you mentioned uh, David Byrne there, which kind of just when you mentioned of course uh, stop making sense it's it's almost like an effigy to that statement isn't it really yeah. uh, because the film doesn't make any sense and I think that people do try and pull out a bit too much uh, like satire within the film and looking at its reflection on um, uh, on consumer culture or industrial culture um, uh, I, th I think that's the wrong way to go into a film like this if you're trying to um, line the uh, line up the dots, then you're looking at it the wrong way. Just enjoy the film for what it is, which is effectively an audacious art house film with pretty much uh, nothing spared. It's everything thrown at the screen and pretty great. Um, we should also mention that there were some sequels which are less good. Um, we have 1992's Tetsuro 2, Body Hammer, which I've seen, and it's uh, it's slightly uh, forgettable predominantly because it has more of a narrative arc to it. Um, given more money, Tusakamoto uh, actually gave us a story in that film, so it's more of a revenge story of um, a guy coming to collect his uh, son who's been kidnapped. Uh, it's worth seeing probably only for the purest, so if you didn't get enough uh, mechanical penises in the first film, then that's the one to check out. Uh, then also there's the one from 2007, Tetsuo the Bullet Man, which is effectively a reincarnation uh, story. Um, again, that's probably just worth leaving in the uh, art house DVD store. Uh, don't go anywhere near that one, but the other one maybe, Tetsuo 2, you want to check out. And I'll just wrap up here because I know that we've been lettering on for quite some time now that if you do want to get some more um, academic or critical discussion on the film, there's quite a few essays across the old internet that uh, you can read and catch up on. One particular is from John Bleasdale who writes for Electric Sheep, an online magazine which is really worth checking out and um, he has a very interesting critique of the film looking at Pretty much what we've been saying, how it's kind of audacious, uh, audacious fun really, but more of the um, uh, social in, uh, impulse of the film and also what it's reflecting on. So that's on Electric Sheep and we will put that uh, a link to that in the show notes. Right, I think that just about does it for our uh, discussion around the theme of Mutant this week. And do remember that if you have any themes that you think we, you'd like us to decode and demystify here on the Frame Loop podcast, you can, uh, of course, send us in your comments and your queries on the website, theframeloop.com. You can comment with us over there or perhaps on Twitter. Mine is Luke underscore Richardson and Rob's Rob Fred Parker. Um, we'll just finish on a lighter, uh, slightly less industrial industrial note with a look, a reflection forward, uh, seeing which isn't really a reflection, is it really? It's more of a, um, what would you call that? A, what would you call that, Rob? You're good with words. Look into the future. <laughs> That'll do. A look into the future. So what we're going to be doing over the next seven days. Rob, what are you going to be doing over the next seven days? Sure. Well, um, we've just discussed Japanese cinema, and I'm hoping to have a look at some Japanese art, um, specifically some Japanese outsider art. 
so there's an exhibition which opened at the Welcome Collection in Euston in uh, London on March the 28th um, and it's called Suzo Outsider Art from Japan um, so this is a collection of 300 works um, by 46 artists they comprise a range of mediums and um, it's actually the first major display of Japanese outsider art in the UK um, so the title uh, Suzo it apparently has no direct translation in English but has a, a dual meaning in Japanese um, so it can mean creation and it also means imagination um, so the the exhibition um, I'm told tries to explore um, these uh, these meanings uh, through the collection of art. Um, the exhibition's been organised in association with Het Dulhoys, the Museum of Psychiatry in Harlem in the Netherlands, and also the Social Welfare Organisation um, in Tokyo. Um, so it, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing it because it sounds like a really um, um, I had a look on, on the welcomecollection.com and um, the examples of art look really striking. Um, so I'm looking forward to going to see that next weekend and I'll certainly write up my thoughts for theframeloop.com. Great, very good to hear. And over the next, not only just the next coming week, but over the next two weeks or so, uh, Copenhagen is taken over by the biggest Scandinavian film festival, CPH Picks. And this is something that, of course, as a film critic, I'm very much interested in frequenting. So this will run from the 11th to the 24th in the capital city here in Denmark. And it's not exactly one of the biggest uh, film festivals in the world, perhaps. There's no real exclusives uh, that you get here. But moreover, it's more important because it pretty much has an expert programme of films that have been featuring and other film festivals. So it's pretty much the cream of the crop that you get here from across the world. Um, one thing, I mean, there's so many things that I'm going to be writing about. Um, I, I'm going to be going to probably maybe two or at the very least one film a day over the next two weeks and reviewing them all for yours truly uh, on theframeloop.com. So you'll be able to see the reviews of films up there. New ones, from example, from Abbas Kiristami, the Iranian visionary, and also uh, Jafar Panahi, another Iranian uh, visionary, and also people like Ben Wheatley will be visiting, talking about his film Sightseers from last year, and George Sluzier, a excellent uh, director, the guy who makes one of my one of my favourite thrillers of all time, The Vanishing, I think from 1992. Um, he is featuring his new film Dark Blood, which was actually the last film. Uh, shot with River Phoenix, the late great River Phoenix, and now that's finished, and now it's screening at the festival. But I will just mention one in particular that I'm looking forward to seeing. It's a documentary, not a feature film, and it's called I Am Divine, directed by Jeffrey Schwartz, and it centres around, if that title wasn't enough, the drag icon Divine, aka Harris Glenn Milstead. He is famous from his, uh, or he or she is famous for the work with John Waters, the kind of legendary American campy director. I really love his work. Of course, you've got films like Hairspray and um, Female Trouble, as well as uh, Pink Flamingos as well, all of which Divine featured in. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Hopefully that will be in other art house cinemas across the world and also in London sometime soon as well. So, I think that's about it. We already gave you the Twitter handles where you can contact us. Also, you can leave us an email if you're still emailing these days. Do you still email, Rob? Um, once or twice a year. Yeah. What about Paige? Do you still Paige? Uh, Telegram is my thing. Telegram. Okay. Uh, well, if you want to send any of us uh, those things, you can probably do so. You've got all of our contact details on theframeloop.com. And also thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, you can subscribe at iTunes and Podomatic and SoundCloud as well. And uh, any final thoughts, Rob? Anything that you'd like to leave us with? Any haikus? Well, um, thanks a lot. No haikus. But thank you for listening. Um, do have a look at our selections of um, mutant art uh films and playlists and if you think we've we've missed anything or if you think there's anything we should check out do leave us a comment and also if you if you have a specific theme you think we should cover do let us know we'd be very happy to hear from you wonderful all right that just about does it uh we'll see you next week thanks very much goodbye bye <laughs>